0: Beloved, I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to um, the classic Christmas text. To Luke chapter 2. And let's stand together and let's read these words together. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Luke writes these words. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when, when Quirinius... Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. What a great privilege, Lord, it is. It is a privilege to be summoned by your grace to worship you this morning. To come into your presence, Lord God, and to offer praise to you, to pray, and Lord God, to open up your holy word, the authoritative truth of the living God And to read it, and to know it is true, and to believe it. Lord, I'm praying that you will meet with us right now in the preaching of your word. That as we consider, uh, 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 Father, uh, a record of events with which we are quite familiar, that, Lord God, our hearts would be stirred to worship you afresh and anew. That we would be moved to father obedience and humility before you that we would recognize the wonder and the grace and the immense love that you have shown that you would redeem sinners like us in the way that you have done it by putting forth your son As the second Adam, the perfect man, the fully obedient one, the atoning sacrifice, the shepherd, and the Lord of your people. Lord, magnify Christ today in our eyes. Magnify your glorious plan in our eyes. Make us to be enthralled with the truth of Christmas morning, the Christmas gift of Christ. Draw our hearts out to you, Lord. Help us, even in the listening, in the responding to a sermon, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Please grant me your spirit. Give me your unction. Let me preach your word faithfully and accurately. Lord God, move in our midst. Be our instructor. Teach and train every heart here today. Give us... Praise and glory to you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been looking at Christmas, you know, ever since we finished Romans, we've been looking at different Christmas texts over the last few weeks, and I've told you why I chose each one. And so here's why I chose, I picked this passage for Christmas Eve morning. Two reasons. One, because it is the quintessential Christmas text. Two, because it's my favorite and I'm the pastor. That's why I picked it. Right? I mean, really, this is my favorite. And I'll tell you why. Because only Luke records for us the actual birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever notice that? He's the only one that really does. And I was thinking about it. You know, the birth of every child is a momentous occasion, right? It's the introduction of a soul into the world that will never die, right? Every birth of every child is a momentous occasion. And yet, here's the truth ever since the world has begun, there has never been and never will be a birth so marvelous a birth so important, a birth so vital as the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So I want us to just look at this text this morning with glad hearts and with thankfulness if you're a believer and with a willingness to be instructed if you're not, you know, and and, and I want us to just look at this text and let it speak to our souls, right? Because this is really, again, like I said before, the quintessential Christmas text. And Luke describes for us here Jesus' birth, and it's very simple, right? It's a simple description of his birth, first of all, but it's unequaled. Look at what he says here again with me in verses 1 through 7. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, first, let me just say a couple of things. Number one, this doesn't read like any of the false God stories of any of the pagan religions of our world, does it? Does it? It's such a simple account. It's a simple account of a very humble birth, and yet there's a lot here for us to consider. I want you to see some things with me this morning, beloved. I want you to notice some things with me from this text this morning. First of all, we need to see that Luke determines to establish Christ, to firmly establish Christ's birth in human history. Date and time, right? Date, time, and place. Like Luke is not playing loose loose and, and fast and loose with the truth here. He wants to establish for us the reality that this is not just a story. Boots and I were talking about this morning. Before when we were singing, we were preparing for worship. We were singing through the worship songs. He made the comment, though, I hate calling it a story. And I feel the same way, because whenever you talk about the Christmas story, people begin to think about it like it's a story like every other story, every other fictional story that's in the world, when this is an actual record of true events, right? Luke is being very deliberate to make us know that Christ's birth took place at a certain place in a certain time in Bethlehem during the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. That's how people dated things. So-and-so ruled for this many years and then he died. And then so-and-so ruled, that's how you dated things. You would date them by the rule or the, the reign of somebody that was close to the situation. And so here he is saying, look, this birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, like this, this actually took place in a real geographical spot. Not Middle Earth. You know, not Narnia. Not a galaxy far, far away. It's not a fable. It's not a legend. It's concrete historical reality. And here's why that's important. We live in an age when there have been so many myths and, and, and so many just, you know, so much folklore that has been intertwined with the Christmas story that the truth gets muddled in people's minds, doesn't it? If this is real history, if this is real history, then the birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord confronts everybody who has ever lived with some very serious objective facts that cannot be merely dismissed as heartwarming legend. And chief among them is this is that God exists. God is. God reigns. God rules. God is God. And moreover, he has sent his son Christ into this world and he is Lord and he is savior. He's the Messiah that's been born according to the prophecies of scripture. He is the promise of God fulfilled. And every single one of us who's ever been born, no matter what your grandmother may have told you, you're a sinner. We're all sinners and desperately in need of a Savior in order to be reconciled to God and be delivered from the just wrath that we deserve. And God, praise God, has provided that Savior. I want you to hear me when I say this to you because this is very important, okay? Christians don't believe. We don't believe the gospel. We don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ just because it makes us feel good. Are you hearing me? Emotions are not the test of truth. We don't believe in Christ because it makes us feel good. We don't believe in Christ because, you know, it helps us in the trials of life or because it's a religious tradition that we grew up on or because we looked at all the other religions in the world and it seems like a more moral path than, say, Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. No, we believe, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the facts of the gospel because they're true. They're true. Luke takes pains to establish the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in concrete reality because it is concrete reality. Second, I want you to see this. And it, it, It's kind of lost on us a little bit, but it wouldn't have been in the days of Theophilus, Okay, when Luke is writing this. Remember, he wrote this for Theophilus. We need to see the divine irony, the divine irony that the Lord Jesus Christ would be born in the reign of Caesar Augustus. Okay, stand by because this is great. Okay. You may not know this, but Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Okay. He's the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And in fact, his name His name's not really Augustus. He gave himself that name. He gave himself that title. It means revered or honored or esteemed, right? His real name was Octavian, okay? And Octavian was a dirtbag. I mean, he just was. And after, you know, after the the death of Caesar, he became singular ruler of the Roman world after a very brutal civil war, okay? And he made the Republic of Rome that was once ruled by the Senate, he made the Republic of Rome an empire ruled by the emperor, right, himself. Then he declared that his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, was in reality a god. And so therefore he was a son of a god. Right? So then asserting that through the victory in the Civil War, that he had brought justice and peace to the whole world. He was acclaimed throughout the Roman Empire as the Savior of the world. It was inscribed on monuments, and he was called King and Lord, right? How divinely ironic is it that the true Son of God the true Prince of Peace, the true Savior and King and Lord would be born during the reign of an arrogant man who claimed to be all these things, but who was none of them. God's timing is perfect. Third thing we need to see is that, beloved, none of these details happen by chance. know, nothing happens by chance in our world. None of the events, the great events of the world, none of them are by chance. They're all they're all a result of and and, and spring from the sovereignty of the Lord God. Isn't that true? We talk about the sovereignty of God. We we talk gladly about the sovereignty of God. It's one of the things we love to to proclaim, isn't it? None of these things happen by chance. But absolutely according to God's sovereignty. I want you to see this. God's divine plan happens according to his divine timetable and his divine will. Here's the deal. Whether Caesar Augustus or Quirinius realized it or not, and it's pretty clear that they didn't, whether they realized it or not, they're just instruments in the divine, in the divine hands of God used to establish the conditions, the necessary conditions, right? The, the, the taxation and, and the census. "...under which the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, in the city of David, and thereby fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5-2." Think about it. Octavian, all he thought he was doing was advancing his own glory and filling the, you know, the coffers of the empire. That's what he thought he was doing. Carrying out, you know, his reign. What he was really carrying out was the eternal purpose of the king of kings. In fact, I like, I like to think of him like this, you know? He thought he was the star. Octavian thought he was the star of things. You know what he really was? He was like that nerdy stagehand that set up the play, set up the stage for the actual actors. You know what I'm saying? Remember that when you were in high school? You'd have that one kid that was the, he wanted to be the actor, but he just didn't have it. And so to be nice, the you know, the, the, Whatever, what do you call those people? The director would like throw him a bone and be like, Tell you what, man, you get to be in charge of all the props. And he was like, Yeah, you know, this is great. And then he like actually took it very seriously, right? Remember those kids? I remember those kids in high school. That's exactly what Octavius is here. Octavian is. He's a stagehand. He's not one of the main actors, he's a stagehand being used by God to set the scene for the birth of a savior that he'll never know a king before whom the empires of this world, his included, would all pass away. As King David rightly declared of the Lord, he said, your, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures Throughout all generations. Every generation sees one king or another. Every generation sees one power or another, right? One human power that rises up and falls. Every generation, in every generation, there's some great human government. And David is saying, Yeah, you know what? All those don't really matter because your kingdom is the only one that lasts through it all. But there's one last thing I want us to see before we move on to the Encounter between the angels and the shepherds. Beloved, I, I want you, to, I want us to consider the remarkable humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the birth of a king is usually, is usually like a, an of public celebration, isn't it? Isn't it? Like when a king gets born, there's revelry, there's drinking, there's eating, there's, you know, all that into the night, right? Kind of like weddings, right? But there's none of that here. The description of Christ's birth here is incredibly humble, isn't it? And it's an insight into the gracious and loving humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this for a moment, right? Here they are. They go to Bethlehem and there's not even one room found in an inn for them. Certainly the king of the universe, the sovereign God of all things could have ensured that there would at least be one vacancy in one of the inns somewhere in Bethlehem, right? Right? But there's not. He doesn't. No, God the father sends his son sends his forth his son to be born not into human glory not into a palace not to be clothed with silk and fine linen not to be served by slaves as a king he doesn't even have his son born into a, a, a motel 6 man instead it's squalor it's filth it's poverty do you see that? Don't have in picture, okay? Sometimes when we think of, and we've talked about this before, we 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 scrub in our minds the whole picture of Christ's birth. Please don't have the vision. Like the many nativities that we set up in our homes, where it looks like Jesus was born, you know, in a shed in our backyard. Not great, but it's not too bad. And at least there's, you know, three sides on it. And there's hay out there, you know, on the ground. And the manger, the feed trough is at least, you know, sort of lifted up off the ground a little bit. And it's kind of clean. And everybody's smiling. And there's a brilliant light shining down from heaven. And everybody's got a halo. And there's an angel doing angel stuff over top. And there's a bunch of animals. And they're all snuggling in close to keep little baby Jesus warm. It wasn't like that at all. It wasn't like that at all. And the only reason we create a manger or our, a, a, a stable scene in our minds like that is because we instinctively know. We instinctively know. He's worth more than that. And yet Jesus was born in humility and squalor, in a stable or in a cave or underneath the stars, we don't know. Born to two peasants. Wrapped in in, in strips of cloth and then placed in a feeding trough. And, And you know, it's not like they took some formula 409 to it before they laid him in it. That is unfathomable condescension, isn't it? On the part of God to redeem his people, to accomplish the salvation of sinners like you and me, that kind of humiliation? I mean, here's the reality about you and me, who are not born in nearly those kinds of circumstances. We have rebelled against God, we spurned his loving kingship, and for what? What did we gain out of it? We worshiped ourselves. You know what that's like? That's like trading diamonds for dung. Good trade. And yet to rescue us who have rejected him, God goes to incredible extremes. And it's mind-blowing. What humiliation. What humility, I mean. To stoop so low to save sinners so unworthy of any kindness at all from God. It defies human comprehension or explanation. And it proceeds from God's grace, pure and simple. No wonder... No wonder God hates pride like he does. Do you ever wonder why? Why is it that God hates pride like he does? It's because he himself is absent of it. Though he is the greatest being above all creation. There was certainly no arrogance or pride in his son. Christ is the very essence of Humility. And if he were not, if he had insisted on his rights as God, if he had refused to become incarnate, if he had said in the great conversation of the triune God, if he had said, I appreciate the gift of sinners to be worshipers, but I don't think they're worth the cost, you and I would still be lost. In fact, we wouldn't be here right now. We'd be at home sleeping or sitting on our front porch having coffee or not even recognizing this day at all. It's a humble scene. Full of glory. And then we're taken from this one humble scene to another. To a common hillside where a bunch of shepherds Normal dudes are hanging out in the middle of the night watching over the sheep when their entire world is turned upside down. Look at it. The scene's amazing. Look at verses 8 and 9. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Talk about the understatement of the year, right? Think about this. I don't want us to miss how extraordinary it is here, beloved, that the very first mention, the first announcement of Christ's birth comes to shepherds. It comes to shepherds, not to the king, not to the Pharisees, not to the Sadducees, not to some of the high priests, not to, you know, the elites of society. It comes to the shepherds. And the shepherds are like the lowliest of the low, right? Right? In fact, that the, fact that the very fact that the Lord God would choose, that the shepherds would be the recipients of this announcement from the angels, speaks volumes to us. Shepherds in Jesus' day, look, they were among the lowest rung on the socioeconomic ladder. They were like at the bottom, Okay? Shepherds lived out among the sheep. They were dirty all the time. And as a rule, they were uneducated. They had a reputation as, as being thieves. And because of the requirements of their occupation, they could not, they were never able to, to become ceremonially clean. So they were never allowed to worship in the temple, which was quite ironic considering the fact that the, she, the sheep over which they watched were used as the sacrifices in the temple, right? Right? Moreover, their testimony in a court of law was was inadmissible, okay? In other words, their social credit score was one level above lepers who were at the bottom. Why would the Lord, why would God Almighty send angels To announce the birth of his son to these guys, to shepherds, to the lowest of the low. I'll tell you why. Because they were the lowest of the low. They were the very epitome of the poor and the lowly and the despised and the outcast. One thing shepherds knew, they knew that they were considered sinners. They knew that they were considered to be wretched in the eyes of the religious. And therefore, they must be wretched in the eyes of God. They were well-identified sinners. And it gives us something to ponder about the grace of God in the Gospels. You know, Jesus said three times something along these lines in the gospel. He said, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I think about that a lot. You know, the one thing that will keep you from being saved is self-justification, won't it? The one thing that will forever keep you from being redeemed is excuse making. The one thing that will forever keep you from being saved is insisting that you're really a good person. Because if you're really a good person, you have no need for a savior, do you? Do you? These guys understood. The announcement was made to them because they knew they weren't righteous. The Lord Jesus Christ came, didn't come for those who think they're already righteous. He comes for those who know they're not. And the shepherds qualified. Amen? And while they're keeping watch over their flock by night, while they're not expecting anything at all to take place that would disrupt their normal you know, nighttime routine, all of a sudden this dark night is suddenly emblazoned as an angel appears out of nowhere. And these sinful men, these shepherds, are filled with great fear, right? Think about that for a moment. You know, you've seen those wacky people that claim to see UFOs, and they're all wide-eyed, like, man, I was out there, and I saw this thing, and it showed up, and it scared me to death. These guys are a little unhinged, right? But these shepherds, man, they're terrified, rightly so. Can you imagine you're just hanging out on a hillside, you're with your bros, you're talking about whatever it is you're talking about, when you're watching over sheep and it's getting kind of boring, and all of a sudden, in the middle of your, your, your you know, little circle there, an angel shows up. And let's just dismiss this you know, right now. These guys are struck with terror. You know why? Because angels don't look like the way they're depicted in our modern culture at all. Angels are not pretty women with wings like parakeets. They're not those little fat, chubby, cherub, naked babies who fly around with recurved bows shooting people with love arrows. They are terrifying creatures. Holy, glorious, mighty, warriors. They're noticeable. They grab your attention real fast. They are fearsome to behold. And this dark night is suddenly emblazoned by the presence of a holy angel that is standing amid the lowliest of all earthly folks. And those dudes thought they were dead because that's what usually happens when angels show up. I mean, sometimes you get to wrestle them, angel of the Lord, really pre-incarnate Christ, till daybreak, till your hip breaks. But most times when the angel shows up, and especially if you're an unrighteous person, you're done. You're, it's over. But it's not just the angel. I and mean, that's terrifying enough, right? But it's this the glory of the lord shone around them the glory of the lord shone around them and that beloved is a statement of staggering significance throughout the biblical history of redemption right we There are occasions where we read in Scripture when God's presence is manifested in a special way with His people. Right? We think of Garden of Eden, how Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day until that fateful day in which they sinned. We think about the glory of God in the Exodus, right, where Moses encounters God in the burning bush and then, you know, in the pillar of cloud and fire and the display of God's glory at the Red Sea. We think about when the tabernacle was finished and. The glory of the Lord came and filled the Holy of Holies and everybody collapsed to the ground before the majesty of Almighty God. We think about how later when the nation of Israel built the temple that the same thing happened, right? But then we come to Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel. And he describes for us A vision of a grim scene. That after the Babylonian invasion, because of the sinfulness and the waywardness of Judah, he beholds as the glory of God actually departs and leaves the sanctuary. How it's carried on a great chariot that's surrounded by cherubim and the glory of the Lord departs from the nation. And from the holy of holies. And from the temple precincts. The glory of the Lord leaves. And never returns until this night. It is a monumental moment in redemption history. history. And the shepherds are terribly frightened. But the angel speaks and he turns their terror into joy. He turns their, their mourning into dancing because what he says changes their lives forever. Verses 10 through 12 say, And the angel said to them, Fear not, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. He says, Fear not. I know you all are terrified. I know you're scared that you should be, but I'm telling you, don't be afraid. Because I have the greatest news you're ever going to hear. And it is. It's the greatest news ever announced in the world. Isn't it? Isn't it? To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. To you is born a Savior. That's what you need. It's the greatest news you're ever going to hear. Because what you need more than anything else is someone to save you. Because of your sin, you're alienated from God. Because of your sin, you're under just condemnation. You're helpless. You're unable to do anything to save yourself. Good news, God has sent you a savior. Good news, God has sent you a deliverer. Good news, Jesus has come to save, and he's come to bear your sin, and he's come to bear your wrath and stand in your place if you are a repentant believer in him and save you from the wrath of God. Amen. There's no greater news ever proclaimed. It's the greatest moment that it ever happened to that point in the history of the world. And shepherds were told the story. A Savior has been born who will deliver you, even you. And this savior is the Christ. It's the Greek. Expression for Messiah, which means the chosen one or the anointed one, right? He's the one that's been chosen and anointed by God as the greatest of all of his prophets, speaking his truth with authority. He is chosen and appointed by God to be the last and the greatest of all priests, offering the final sacrifice for sins, himself a sacrifice that will actually pay our sin debt in full. He is chosen and anointed By God to be king. The king over the universe, over every created being, over his church. He's the king of the ages. And he's Lord. He's nothing less than God in the flesh. God become man to save sinful men. Jesus is Lord. You realize that's the most basic confession of all Christianity, isn't it? Jesus is Lord. That's why we say that at baptisms. When people come up out of the water, we confess together what? Right, That's the most basic confession we make as Christians. And here's why this is important. This Savior who is Christ, the Lord. No matter what other thing we might confess about Jesus, if we don't confess him as Savior, as Christ, who is Lord, then we are falling far short of the biblical confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Any confession that falls short of Jesus as Savior of sinners, as the uniquely chosen one of God, as fully God and fully Lord, as having the right to reign over every human soul and over all of creation, listen to me, that's not the good news of the Bible. The good news is that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the anointed of God. J.C. Ryle says, we ought not wonder at these words. We ought not wonder at these words, he says. The spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years was about to be rolled away. The, The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be crushed. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just, And yet, for Christ's sake, justify the ungodly. Salvation was no longer to be seen through types and figures, but openly and face to face. The knowledge of God was no longer to be confined to the Jews, but to be offered to the whole Gentile world. The days of heathenism were numbered. Amen. The first stone of God's kingdom was about to be set up. If this was not good news, Then there never was news that deserved the name. Amen. I want to ask you a question personally. Okay? Personally. Is the gift of a Savior who is Christ the Lord, is that good news to you? Or is it just ho-hum? Is it good news to you that brings forth praise in your heart and thanksgiving and joy, or is it just eh? Let me ask you in a different way. Let me ask you in a different way. Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see yourself as a sinner who deserves the judgment of the Holy God? In yourself, in and of yourself. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as a sinner who deserves the judgment of the Holy God without any mercy and with no excuse? Do you see yourself as a sinner who deserves judgment from the Holy God without mercy and with no excuse and who is helpless to do anything to save yourself? I'll tell you what, until you do, this will always be ho-hum to you. Until you really see yourself that way, the, the birth of a Savior who is Christ, the Lord won't move your needle much. It just won't. That's why the birth of Christ, you ever wondered why the birth of Christ is only the backdrop to Xmas, Xmas in our culture? You ever wonder why that is? If he's considered at all? Christ's birth rests with so little weight in our society, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it in the church too. Because as a whole, we, don't simply, we simply just don't see how needy we really are. And as long as people fail to perceive or admit their need, as long as there exists within somebody this entitlement mentality, you know what I'm talking about, this entitlement mentality, this feeling that we deserve mercy, we deserve forgiveness from God, we deserve good things from His hand. We deserve God to bless us. Yes, we do. As long as we lie to ourselves and, and tell ourselves that God is obligated to forgive, we will never grasp, we will never ever grasp the grace of God in sending Christ to be the savior of sinners. Never. As long as we think that God owes us anything except his just judgment and his divine displeasure we will never understand the gospel or see how badly we need a savior or be thankful or be moved by the incarnation in fact listen that's why it's so hard to motivate people who are nominal christians into anything other than nominal christianity because the awareness the reality the the true understanding of our sinful state and desperate need for a savior produces false converts Are you hearing me? We're trying to motivate people to walk like Christians when they're not Christians at all. And the evidence of that is Christ doesn't mean all that much to them because they really don't see themselves as all that needy. That's why people get so infuriated in churches when you actually talk about the radical depravity of mankind. When you talk about the fact that sin has affected every single aspect of who we are, all of it, our emotions, our will, our minds, our desires, everything is afflicted by sin. We are desperately depraved people and we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. And we're really good at pointing out other people's faults and sins and wickedness. And then when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we all of a sudden become Stevie Wonder. We see nothing. A Savior doesn't mean much to you until you know you're a sinner. In fact, here's what I find. People that are truly saved, the more they grow in Christ, the more they realize what a What a reprehensible sinner they once were and still can be, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, and the more they treasure the Lord Jesus Christ for it. That's my experience. To those of us that have had our eyes opened, who feel the weight of our sin, and see Christ as the only one that can save our souls, to us, Christ is supremely precious. And the mercy of God is priceless and it's glorious. This had to be a choice assignment among the angel band. To get to come to these guys and, 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 and declare this. You know, we don't know who this is, which angel it is. We don't even know if it's Gabriel or Michael anyway. It might be, you know, any other angel named, whatever. am not going to pretend I know any other angel names because, you know, we don't pretend about angels here. I'd like to stick with the text. But here's this angel declaring this wondrous truth about Christ. And then, can you, man, you got to feel for the shepherds a little bit, don't you? Here they are. They've just gotten accustomed to the fact that there's an angel in their midst. Right? You think they've weathered the storm, right? The appearance of one angel. And then all of a sudden, there bursts forth a spillover of praise from a multitude of angels, from an angelic army. That's what the word hosts mean. And they're declaring glory to God in the highest. It goes from one little angel, well, not one little, one angel, right? To a whole bunch of them, man. Like they've just been hanging out in the dark, waiting for the moment, right? To turn on the lights. And Luke tells us these words, verses thirteen and fourteen. Suddenly there was to the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on peace on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased all of a sudden this angelic army shows up and they begin to say the same thing in unison glory to god in the highest gloria in excelsis deo right The highest acclaim, they're saying. The greatest revelation of God's glory is the appearing of His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. Think about that for a moment. Imagine the amazement of the angels as they watched the glorious second member of the Trinity born as a helpless child, wrapped up in swaddling cloths, and then stuck in a manger. Though they don't even, they they can't even understand this, right? They don't understand all that they saw. They're wondering in rapt amazement as God enters time for the purpose of saving fallen humanity. And it moves these angels to praise their creator and to proclaim his glory. Notice that for a moment. The very first ones to praise God when Christ is born are the angels, the holy angels, the angels who never fell, the angels who when Satan rebelled, they stayed true. Those angels, angels who never needed a savior, angels who never rebelled against God, gloried in the announcement of a savior. They were ecstatic. Because what was revealed to them was the glory of God in a way they had not earlier known. They knew God as the God of holiness, as the God of justice, as the God of righteousness as the God of judgment, as the God of omnipotent power. But God of grace, God of mercy, God of forgiveness? Not like this. Not till this moment. And they're rejoicing. And why? It's because they get to announce in the arrival of Christ the answer to the greatest need in this earth. What is the greatest need we have in this earth? It's peace with God, isn't it? Isn't it? It's peace with God. It's peace between the pardoned soul and the God who pardons, right? This marvelous atonement that's made between the sinner and the judge. We need peace with God so we can live in peace so we can live with a confident trust in the Lord, without guilt and anxiety and fear, this peace that's offered freely to all mankind. Peace with God is what every human soul really needs. Our great need is not just to go to church. Our great need is not to clean up and get our act together. It's not merely to get one thing or the other thing that will make us happy. That's why secular Christmas is ultimately a letdown. You ever realize that? Like you get away from the gift giving and everything else and it's kind of like, eh. What did we just do? At least we got a few days off from work. That's great. None of that stuff sticks. Peace with God is what every human soul needs. And until a man or a woman has peace with God, and is reconciled to him in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever joy and satisfaction, whatever happiness they might experience, can I tell you what it is? It's deceitful illusion, and it's short of duration. You hearing me? It's deceitful illusion, and it's short of duration. The peace that God offers in Christ, though, is real. It's got substance. It changes you. The angels pronounce peace to those with whom he is pleased. Who is it with whom God is well pleased? Who is it? Is it the self-satisfied? Is it the self-promoter? Is it the self-actualizer? Is it the guy that just, you know, gangbusters, takes all the gifts he's been given and makes something of himself? Is that who pleases God? You know it's not so. The one that pleases God is the one who sees their need who recognizes their desperate need for a Savior, who sees the beauty of Christ, who turns from their sins to Him in faith, and who trusts in the work of Christ to deliver them from the wrath of God. They know they need mercy. They know they've made a shipwreck of their own lives, and they need the grace of God. They need a shepherd for their souls, and the only one to be found and to be trusted is Jesus alone. That's the one with whom God is well pleased. And the shepherds qualified. Think about this. God chose to announce the birth of his Savior to shepherds, right? An ancient equivalent of a biker gang. Oh, really. Or like a tent city of homeless people. I'm not exaggerating. That's who God chooses. And you know what? It's in perfect keeping, isn't it? With the way God does things. Do you remember the words of Paul? For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Amen. We look at these shepherds. Man, they're sinners just like us. And they hear the good news. That's to them. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. And it's for us. You know what's wonderful about the gospel? The gospel doesn't require a PhD to understand. Does it? It doesn't require the geniuses of the world to help us understand it. It doesn't require vast sums of money or a high social standing to obtain. Just a believing heart that knows it needs mercy. That's it. And it's true that the angels in this moment, I mean, you know, we've got to believe in in seeing the response that the shepherds, would come to an even greater understanding and grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at least in this moment, the angels were speaking greater things than the shepherds really could have understood, right? And yet they knew enough to respond. Notice that. They knew enough to respond. And they did. In fact, Luke records two different, very different, but complementary responses to the announcement of the angels. That of the shepherds, and then of Mary. Look again. Look again at the words that start in verse fifteen, verses fifteen through eighteen. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, "Let's take a nap." No, that's not what they said. They said, "Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us." And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Praise God for these shepherds. These guys don't just hear this and then like, you know, do nothing with it. They know it at all. They, they, they responded with faith. as evidenced by the fact that they left their sheep and went with haste to Bethlehem to see for themselves what the Lord had revealed to them. I mean, think about that, right? They're supposed to be responsible for these sheep. If these sheep get eaten by a wolf, it comes out of them. Like they got to pay for that. They got to make the, 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 the sheep owner whole. And yet here are the guys, they're all amazed. They're all in wonder. And they just, they leave the sheep to themselves. They'll be all right. We're going to go see what the Lord has revealed to us in Bethlehem. And remember the sign. The sign would be they would find this baby that was wrapped in swaddling cloths and then lying in a manger, right? Lying in a food trough. That would identify them to the shepherds. That would identify him to the shepherds. And so they take off to go find this unique sight. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered? Because I wondered. Have you ever wondered? How Joseph and Mary and Jesus found how, how they found Joseph and Mary and Jesus in this town that was just teeming with people. You ever wonder how that happened? Like if you let me loose downtown in let's say I don't know Charlotte, and you just put one of my family members there and said, "Okay, go find them." Like unless I got Life Three Hundred and Sixty or the GPS thing or whatever that thing is on your phone, whatever that you know voodoo demonic thing that, you know, iPhone has put on there. Unless I've got that, I'm not finding them. How in the world did the shepherds find Joseph and Mary and Jesus in a town that was teeming with people? I don't know, but they did. They did. And when they found them, what did they find? They found exactly what they were told. They didn't find a kingly child, you know, arrayed in royal robes in a golden cradle with the initials, you know, JC on there. They didn't find that. They found a wriggling little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a wooden manger, bloody and just born. But the person that they knew by faith was a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Beloved, here's Christ offered to us, right? Proclaimed in the word of God, in order that we might come by faith to him. And what we see in the shepherds is that there is no excuse for delay by anyone. They didn't use the excuse, well, I just don't know enough yet. They didn't use the excuse, well, this is all brand new. They didn't use the excuse, well, I need to examine all the other possibilities before I go with this guy. It's not that at all. That doesn't occur to them because their hearts have been transformed. In fact, instead of allowing the word of God to fade in their hearing, they got a sermon from an angel. But instead of allowing that to fade from their hearing, The shepherds determined to respond immediately. And we ought to do the same. This word, I I want to say something to the young people here, especially you younger boys in the youth group. Respond to what you've heard. Respond to it. Don't satisfy your soul by saying, well, someday, one day, When I get to a certain age, when I get to a certain level of maturity, when I've had an opportunity to sin a little bit more, then there's not some age or state of maturity that you need to get to, some number of times that you need to hear the gospel before you stop with your arrogant pride and submit to Christ as Savior and Lord. And don't act like that's not what it is. That's exactly what it is. You know the gospel. You could tell me the gospel. You refuse to believe the gospel. And that's nothing less than pride. I would challenge you. Ask any of the adults that are in Christ in this church. Ask any of them. And they'll tell you if they have any regret in their life, it's that they didn't follow Christ sooner. That's their greatest regret. They didn't follow Christ sooner. And for you that are indecisive, smugly sitting in you know, judgment on the, the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And I mean that in a loving manner. Like I'm not throwing down gloves to fight. I mean, if you want to, we can. That's not what I'm saying though. Who do you think you are? You esteem yourself far greater than you should. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. God has provided one. Who are you to turn your nose up at the salvation God has offered? What more does God have to do? What more must he do to prove to you his heart? How long will you remain indecisive? What additional evidence do you need? You've got the testimony of the Scriptures. You have a greater testimony than the angels gave to the shepherds. So if you're sitting here and you're yet indifferent or you think you can worship a Jesus of your own imagination or your own creation, the one that doesn't demand that you worship him, the one that doesn't demand that you actually, you know, not forsake the assembling of the saints, the one that says to you, you be holy as I am holy. If if you're content to worship a Jesus of your own creation, that Jesus can't save you. Are you hearing me? Shepherds didn't treat the angels' announcement with indecision or with indifference or delay. They went and they saw the Messiah. They went and they saw this one that God had told them about through the angels. They saw Christ. They saw the baby in the manger. And verse 20 says, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them, concerning this child and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God (laughs) I love that man they went and they told Mary and Joseph everything that they'd been told about Jesus can you imagine that you get to be the herald of news to the parents of the child you tell them everything they know you tell them everything you know right But they don't stop there. Having been recipients of the good news, they were filled with praise and joy and with a burning desire to make known what the angels had told them. And so as they went back to the hillside, they told everybody along the way what God had revealed to them. You know what I love about these guys? They, they, you know what? They didn't care what other people thought. They had no concern for waiting for an opening to share. How often do we use that as an excuse for not saying anything about the Lord Jesus Christ? These guys didn't do that. They were telling everybody. And they, you know what? I'm sure, I'm sure that as they said all this and people were hearing what they said, they were wondering, at of course they were wondering at it. They were amazed at what these guys were telling them. Some of them probably treated them in the way that we treat like the West Virginia UFO guys, right? Oh, you're out in the middle of nowhere, and an angel showed up, told you a Messiah was born in Bethlehem, and you went and saw him? Okay, thanks. Thanks, man. Have some more bad dog 2020, right? But others were struck by what they said. Some dismissed them, yes, but it didn't stop them. It didn't stop them. They didn't get their feelings hurt by those who perhaps mocked them. I want you to think about that for a moment. If simply seeing Christ in the manger had such an effect on them, how much more powerful ought the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ be on our own worship and witness? If a baby in the manger makes these guys Unashamedly vocal, how much more should the truth of the whole work of Christ make our mouths to proclaim his glory and proclaim the message among a people who are in darkness who desperately need to hear it? And then, after all of this, the angels, or the angels, the shepherds just went back to their ordinary lives. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? After all this was done, they just went back to their ordinary lives. I think that's really instructive. I think that's really instructive. You know what? Sometimes we get this idea that God calls us to this spectacular, flashy, constantly exciting life. No, he doesn't. No, he really doesn't. That's not what he calls us to. God doesn't call us to some ego-satisfying life experience trip. He doesn't always call us to some great act of devotion. You know what he does call us to? Repentance and belief in the Savior. To obedience and worship. To rejoicing in him and in his great salvation day in and day out. To live for Christ in the context that he has placed us. To ordinary, extraordinary lives. The shepherds went back to the life they'd always known. But the shepherds that went back to that life were not the same men they had once been. Mary's response, though, is different. Luke tells us Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Treasured up means that Mary, when she heard this, she prized and she guarded and she preserved in her thoughts everything that she heard. She tried not to miss anything. That's the idea. And she pondered she, she thought long and pers- purposefully about everything that these shepherds said and what it meant. She spent time pondering and treasuring the things of most significance. You know, beloved, we, we spend a lot of time, many times, thinking about and being obsessed with things that don't really matter, right? We don't even know it sometimes. Like, I'll come home sometimes, you know, and I'll think I'm normal, whatever that is, but I'll think I'm normal, and I'll come into the house, and I won't say a word. I'm just kind of, you know, in myself. And Gretchen will be like, what are you thinking about? And at first I don't even hear I, I usually respond, huh? <laughs> not a good thing to do if you're a husband. Huh? But, I'll, you know, she'll be like, what are you thinking about? And, and sometimes I'm thinking about the most worthless things. It seems like I'm thinking about some great thing I'm not. I'm thinking about why didn't Mike Tomlin put Mason Rudolph in as the quarterback four weeks ago. That's the kind of stuff I think about sometimes. Those worthless things. Mary treasured and pondered the gospel. She she really thought about the things that mattered and what that will always lead to is humility and to the worship of the Lord. But both of them responded, didn't they? The shepherds and Mary, they both responded to the truth. And that's the point, beloved. The birth of Christ demands a response, right? faith, proclamation, praise, pondering, treasuring, not indifference. What's your response? You know, Christmas we talk about, well, we really talk about it all year long, what a glorious gift Christ is. But listen, man, here's the thing about the gift of Christ. This is a gift that must be, he is a gift that must be received. And the way that you receive him is through repentance from our sin and faith in him, belief in him, and in his work on the cross to save us from sin and 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 joyful submission to him, lifelong submission to him as Lord and Master. Beloved, listen to me. Saving faith is personal, and if it's real, if it's real personal faith, it defines the whole of your life. Nobody can believe for you. You got to believe. And believing in being a Christian, listen, it's it's not just holding a general belief in God or in a Jesus who lived a long time ago. Real faith is, is a personal trust in the personal Christ and all that he is. Saving, saving faith in Christ is, is not something you did a long time ago. If you are looking back to this decision, quote unquote, that you made a long time ago, you are kidding yourself. I've said this to you before. I'll say it again. When the scriptures say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, that word believes means believes and keeps on believing. It's a participle. I don't know what that means. I wasn't good in English. You don't have to be. What I'm telling you is this. It means believe and keep on believing. That's what it means. Christ is not something you do you believed in he's not somebody you believed in a long time ago it's a fate that is the foundation defining element of your life it's not just professing to be a christian there are plenty of professors that on the day of judgment will say lord lord did we not lay out their laundry list and jesus will look at them and say depart from me for i never knew you you worker of lawlessness but they professed you're right but they didn't really believe It's not professing to be a Christian. It's not just scriptural knowledge. It's not just baptism or moral reform or going to church or taking the Lord's Supper or being a member of a church or living a life of self-discipline and sacrifice. Look, all those things do in fact follow in the life of somebody who's truly saved, but salvation is very simple. Salvation is entered into by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By personally trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, turning away from your sin, your life of rebellion and believing that Jesus Christ has loved you despite your sin and that he's come to this world and that he's taken upon himself human flesh and laid down his life and died on the cross and risen from the dead to pay the punishment that you deserve for your sins so that he might give you eternal life and forgiveness and peace with God. True saving faith is casting all your hope, all your trust for deliverance and life upon Christ's perfect life and death in your place that's what it is that's the great glory that the that the angels were announcing to the shepherds the glory to God in the highest and beloved when you behold the highest glory of God in Christ it changes you it's got to it's got to It produces in you praise and obedience. It produces in you a desire to magnify the glory and the worth of Christ. It it causes you to ponder the greatness of God's grace and His mercy in Christ and see Jesus as the greatest of all treasures ever. And Mary and the shepherds serve as great examples to us of how we should respond again and again to the incarnation of our Lord. But as we leave this text this morning and we look back to This humble birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I cannot help but think of what it will be like when he returns. The days of humiliation will be over. The first time he came as a lamb. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The lamb given for the sins of the world. He came in humiliation and degradation. He suffered. He was mocked. He was brutalized. He endured everything that he must in order to redeem for himself a people. But make no mistake, when he comes again, he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there won't be any more mocking. And there won't be any more joking. And there won't be any more disregarding him or dismissing him. There will only be rapt awe, great thanksgiving amongst those who are being fully redeemed, the believers in Christ, true Christians, and absolute unrelenting terror for those who will fall under the judgment that comes forth from the sword of his mouth. There will be no more mocking of Christians in that day. Oh, you believe in make-believe. Oh, tell us about your imaginary God in the sky. They won't have to ask about the imaginary God in the sky, because that, quote, imaginary God in the sky will be fully present for all to see. When he comes again, he came first to to take away the sins of his people. He'll come again to judge the lost. He'll come again to take his people to himself as a spotless bride and to remove the very presence of sin. He came to save the first time. The next time he comes, he will come to reign with a rod of iron over a renewed creation and we will reign with him. That's the promise of Scripture. Because the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. If you have not come to Christ, now is your chance. Nobody's coming to Christ on the day he returns except those who are already in him by faith. And even we will be filled with awe and fear and wonder at his appearing. Here's Luke saying, here's what I'm saying. Jesus Christ is the focal point of all history. He is ever the Lord of history, like we sang this morning. And nobody occupies the place that he alone deserves. He's our life, and he's our hope. He's the heart of God's truth. He's our everything. Don't treat him lightly. Don't treat him lightly. The one thing every one of us needs every single day is a fresh view of the glory of Jesus Christ to permeate our souls. Because as Christ grows dim in our eyes, we grow great. And you know where that leads. Christ is everything. And he needs to be everything every day to each one of us. I'll close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. When he was asked, he was asked, you know, what do you want? What do you think should be the theme of the church in which you serve? What's the theme of your pulpit? What's the theme of your ministry? Here's what he said. I love it. Love Charles Spurgeon. Love him. He said, I would propose... That the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist, but if I am asked to say, what is my creed? I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. The body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Christ Jesus who is the sum and the substance of the gospel, who is himself, all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we need to be reminded all the time of the glory and the wonder that the second member of the Trinity would take to himself human flesh and become our Savior, who is Christ the Lord. How desperately we need for you by your Holy Spirit to make us to feel truly the weight of that truth. Lord, I know that there are some in this room even now on Christmas Eve morning who are outside the family of God Who sit in judgment upon your truth, who bow up their hearts to refuse to believe the truth, who like a Jesus of their own creation, but they're not enamored much with the Jesus of the Bible. I pray, Lord God, for each one of those souls, each one of those people in this room today, each kind. First, for the The arrogant and the dismissive, Lord God, that you would humble them in their own eyes. That you'd cause them to see that they're neither the source nor the ground of truth. That what they think and what they feel is inconsequential before the truth of the living God. And that you would humble themselves, that they might behold themselves as they are. Desperate sinners in need of a Savior. And Lord, that they might give up this war with you and sur- surrender to Christ, repenting of their sins, turning to Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven, or that they would turn to Jesus as the one who alone can save. I pray for the ones, Lord God, that are doing all that they can. They've heard the gospel repeatedly and they're, they're, they're putting up a fight. Their, their flesh is putting up a fight refusing to believe, I pray that their flesh would be exhausted by your grace. I pray that you'd humble them and you'd break them. I pray that you'd remove every single excuse and that you'd make them to cry out for salvation in the Lord Jesus. I pray for those, Lord God, who are trusting in a Christ of their own making, a Jesus who's just an example, a Jesus who's just, you know, a good man, a Jesus who is a, you know, a good model for what people should be like. A Jesus who never judges anybody. A Christ who never holds anyone accountable. Would I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of the word of God. Yes, it is true, and we praise you that it is, that... Lord God, we are in that time right now, that age, when you are saving people by your grace, when you are drawing people to salvation by your spirit in Jesus Christ. Lord, we also know there's a day coming when judgment will fall and there will be no escape. And only those who are standing in the true Christ will be saved. I pray, Lord God, that those people would. be saved. Be saved. And I pray too, Lord God, for everyone in this room who's a believer, who's truly following the Lord Jesus Christ, move our hearts by this word. Make us, Lord God, to behold the glory of Christ and respond in the way that the shepherds did, that Mary did, that we can't be indifferent, but we must respond. I pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.